0: A lot of people just villainize their coping mechanisms, not realizing that there is a perfect design to our physiology. And even in the ways mental health breaks you, it's actually trying to keep something separate from each other. It's, It's its own version of organization. It just doesn't serve you when you're no longer living into that trauma.
1: Hey guys, I'm Miles.
0: And I'm Ruthie.
1: And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do.
2: Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world. But sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it.
1: So we would love for you to join us and listen along. And we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken.
0: Make up fake love, make them all laugh, come on, someone, take off your mask, it's nice to me.
1: Today on the podcast, we have Azita Articani. Azita is an entrepreneur, social activist, and human-centered communication expert with a fascinating background. She was born in Iran and immigrated to Canada on the tail end of the Iran-Iraq War, With a background in sociology, she has consulted with the United Nations on multiple highly successful digital media campaigns. She founded lovesocial.org, an award-winning digital agency who's developed strategies for NPR, Nike, Oprah Magazine, and many other organizations. She recently launched the Honeycomb Portfolio, a social and environmental impact investment firm, helping build groundbreaking companies that are doing good around the world. She was named Forbes 30 Under 30 in New York Business Journal's Women to Note and Wall Street Business Journal Women to Note, among many other recognitions.
2: Obviously, she has all of these accolades, but one of the things that's just so amazing about Azita is she's also one of the most wholehearted people that I've ever met. She has this incredible brain and has done so many impactful things. For the world, but she's also so big hearted and loves so deeply. So, we are just so excited to share Azita with you today.
1: She is one of my favorite thinkers, and I had no idea. I mean, I, I, I knew a little bit about her, but man, when I talked to her, I learned so much. She thinks in layers, and it's beautiful, and it's empathetic, and it's important. So, if you don't know her, you need to listen to this because the world needs to know Azita.
2: Hi, guys. (laughs) Uh, Azita. Oh, my gosh.
1: The house. When we made our. We're in her house.
2: Yeah, we're in your house. This perfect new home. Oh, my gosh. That already, you've lived here three weeks and Uh already feels like the most incredible exhale. It is. It's a little slice of heaven. Truly. In the middle of New York. I'm like, this respite. Mm -hmm. It is incredible. Thank you. Well, sister, when we first made our list of people that we wanted to interview, you were on, and I'm like, we've got to interview Azita. (laughs) And we were just like, done. Like, we're going to make this happen. So here we are. I know. I'm so excited. Me too. Thank you, sister. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Such a gift. And then you're like, what what are we going to (laughs) talk about? I'm like, I don't know. We're going to sit and just (laughs) also whatever. Yes. You are probably one of the most fascinating, intelligent women in my life. There are times where I'm like, um, what are these words? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, it's so amazing because we speak similar heart languages, we do. but your brain, good God, I cannot even begin. I'm like, I can barely scratch the surface. I'm like, huh? What are you? it's so you are so incredibly brilliant and beautiful and doing so many amazing things in the world i so think I'm, it should we should just wrap it up at that
0: <laughs> <laughs> that feels we good for me seen. we good
2: we good you got that all right great oh, i sweet. need to <laughs>
1: echo it too because i only got to spend just a short amount of time mm. with you in ride. and i you know walk away from something a conversation like we have which i'm sure a lot of people do thinking that's a whole human mm. uh, your intellect blew me away but then uh your eq I was like, you don't often see that. So the way what you've done and innovated and disrupted in the spaces that you've been, you've done it with a conscious. And when I look at what you've created, which I'm excited to talk about and learn more about, but it's almost like, man, she does business with a soul. Mm -hmm. And you don't get to see that a lot.
0: And it's amazing with both of you, my experience is that the things that when you know someone can hold that dimensionality, you bring it to the table. Hmm. Where there's conversations I have that I don't necessarily bring that whole self to the conversation if I don't feel like it can fully be received. So that's on, that's a homage to you, both of you.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Say more about that. I'd love to hear more about that.
0: Well, it's, I always say that everything we externalize our inner worlds, whether it's in our career or our relationships or, you know, our friendships or anything. And, um, It's just really interesting in conversations how the words that come out of our mouth are so often based on the space and the humans that we're interacting with. And sometimes you can surprise yourself and it's really because of the company that you're in um, versus a thought you may not even have on your own if it wasn't interacting in real time with somebody that is evoking that from you, sometimes not even with words.
1: It's kind of like, mirror neurons and mm-hmm. you can catch emotion like a cold if it's invited but i think it also you and uh the energy that you put out also invites the energy back totally. so, but i haven't heard it said quite like that so
2: yeah. i agree um okay where were you born in iran
0: so i was born during the iran and iraq war um so that was we were in like a seaside town outside of tehran so not even in the city
2: wow and yeah. how old would
1: have been you? early 80s
0: it was, yeah, so I was born in 85, so it was the tail end. Okay. Um, uh, my mom had my brother and my sister during, like, the worst of it, mm. and uh, they left the main city to just kind of avoid, you know, some of the tumultuousness there. Mm. That was a yeah.
1: massive conflict. I think underreported, but what totally. I've read about it, wow.
0: Yeah, it's also wild how these things, you know, it wasn't until recently, it was actually Mother's Day, and I was asking my mom... You know, I was wishing her a happy Mother's Day. And I think for the first time I acknowledged, I was like, thank you for being pregnant with me during a war and literally holding me and Mm -hmm. trying to hold yourself together and a family together. And just the acknowledgement that that happened in my history and in her history. But I think with immigration and with kids of that kind of background, you so much want to divorce that part of your story when you immigrate because you just want to assimilate as the first thing of survival. And so it wasn't until recently I looked back and I was like, tell me about that. Tell me about what it meant to be a mother during a war, especially considering the refugee crisis that we're dealing with right now. Yes. Yes.
1: What did you learn?
0: I learned that um, she still wanted to instill joy for us in little ways. And she really tried to normalize for my brother and my sister things to do and try not to be in that autonomic shock state all the time so that my siblings had some normality. Um, And then they they really went into strategy mode of like, how do we get these kids out of here? You know, which they did successfully to Vancouver. So... Um, and she said, I mean, it's it's trauma, so it's disassociation. And oh. I've come to love disassociation as the brilliance of our body. Mm. You know, there's so many It things. gets a bad rap. It gets it. All of the survival mechanisms are villainized. Mm. And they're these beautifully, elaborately conducted ways to keep us safe. Yeah. You know? And so though disassociation... And then you outgrow them, and that's when you need to kind of loop back. But for her some of these coping strategies actually helped her survive that time.
1: you mind letting the listener know what dissociation is?
0: Yeah. So disassociation, the way I uh, explain it to people is that when you have something happen to you that is bigger than your body and bigger than your ability to metabolize the event, you leave your body because you actually can't contain all that information inside of it, it's no longer safe, or your body's signaling that it's not safe here, so it kind of kicks you out. Mm. What it creates is kind of a psychic split where you start going into a state of observation, but not like a good, healthy observation, as in you're really separated from an embodied experience. So you kind of start feeling like you're watching things um, happen to you as opposed to really living into a three-dimensional life. And some people go in and out of waves of dissociation or they need to be triggered to disassociate. Other people are in a chronic state of disassociation, which means that they essentially don't feel like they're inside their life ever. They feel locked out of their life. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Because I think we we, the psychological community is really over pathologized Mm -hmm. people's process and Mm -hmm. you don't see the benefit and the brilliance of biology at play. And this is way more common than people know about dissociation because I work with trauma survivors all the time. And it doesn't have to be primary trauma. It can be secondary or vicarious trauma that teaches us to dissociate. Mm-hmm. And it's like anything else. We Earlier we were joking before we started the recording about the Enneagram and the healthy version and the unhealthy version of different numbers. Same goes for dissociation. And usually it's unhealthy when you don't know about it. But when you're educated about it in the way that you just said, it can be a viable asset.
0: Totally. First, it's like you don't know what's happening because these are all speechless systems. Hmm. It's not like you get an operating system indicator that's like, we're going into dissociative (laughs) to process this gnarly thing right now. It's pretty scary. Yeah. And so it takes a long time to be like, hey, I am experiencing this thing and it hurts me. And your tool starts working against you when it needs to be taken out of your toolkit. But we don't even know it's a tool. We don't know we've out, outgrown the tool. Yeah. And so it's kind of this confusing in-between. Um, and I agree, a lot of people just villainize their coping mechanisms, not realizing that there is a perfect design to our physiology. And even in the ways mental health breaks you, it's actually trying to p- keep something separate from each other. It's wow. it's, its own version of organization. It mm. just doesn't serve you when you're no longer living into that trauma
2: this girl (laughs) i love
1: that yeah thank you and i don't mean to take us too far i want to hear the backstory too i have a feeling we're going to be riffing a lot oh yeah because i I love it i love your journey yeah yeah
2: Yeah. teach i'm with you i'm with you so how old were you when you guys came over yeah so we canada yeah
0: so we my brother they wanted to make sure that my brother didn't get drafted. Mm. So my mom and dad took him to Turkey and literally couldn't find a family and picked a family off the street. And we're like, will you take our son? My brother was living with a strange family within 12 hours. What? Yeah, because they had to get back to Iran. And that was the next two and a half years of his life living truly with strangers. Mm. How old was he? He was, so if I was four, he was 14. Mm. Yeah. And he actually wrote a beautiful piece in his high school newspaper that I only read this year. I didn't know he wrote about it. Um, And so he was there and then they got together their paperwork and we immigrated probably, yeah, when I was about three or four. So, no, he was younger. He was probably 13. Um, And then we were in Vancouver by the time I was five.
2: Tell um, us what you were saying yesterday about your favorite teacher.
0: Yeah. So it's funny. I joke a lot about this, but it's real. So (laughs) when kids immigrate, there's no, you know, one, two, three of holidays. And holidays are so primary for your evolution as a child. And as an immigrant kid, it's already hard enough. I don't speak the language. I don't look like you and one day when I walk into class and you're all wearing masks, it's very scary because it's Halloween and I didn't get the memo.
2: Oh, <laughs> Wow.
0: So it's, it's kind of hilarious and it's kind of traumatizing. I mean, looking back, I laugh a lot about it. But I walked in and I was terrified because yeah. these kids are all yeah. wearing masks and there's ghosts and there's... These things, I know it's exciting, but I'm like, oh, I really don't know what to do right now. Mm. So I was sitting in my cloakroom, tapping my LA gear light shoes, <laughs> and Mrs. Brown came in and nonverbal, verbally kind of tried to explain what Halloween was to me, and she cut out a cardboard crown, and she put it on my head. And looking back, that was such a act of grace because she could have cut out anything, mm. and it was, oh. she kind of like put me into this space of like royalty you belong here and mm. um and and I went home really proud that I was like a part of this holiday and tried to relate it to my dad which I butchered I was like dad you have to send me into the streets at night and I have to go get the candy <laughs> he was like "It's from me. strangers
2: homes I was like you know? at
0: night send me out <laughs> He was like, I don't understand. Canada's insane. Oh, my
2: gosh. I can't even imagine what – do you have very many memories of, like, what was that like when you first came over and can't speak the language? I can't even imagine.
0: I I just remember I was – I got really good at chameleoning. I was the youngest. So my sister was – yeah, if I was five, she was probably, like, 11. My brother was 15, 16 by then. And they were kind of developed at a certain age, but I was really soaking it all up. And I felt like the messenger for my family. Mm -hmm. Like I would go into class and be like, Christmas, okay. And I'd come home and I'd be like, we got to pull that bush out of the yard and bring it inside, (laughs) it's Christmas. My dad'd be like, where's my time? Like I wrapped it, it's under the tree, you have to wait. (laughs) You know, it was like these discombobulated versions of holidays. Um, I remember milestone things of fitting in. Mm. So because I was born during the war, my birthday is different on my passport because I didn't get a birth certificate until much later. I don't know exactly what day I was born. And so one day at school in September, I get a cupcake and kids wishing me a happy birthday, but my birthday is two months later. And so it's like, I don't have the words to explain. I don't have, I don't know when my birthday is. This is two months ahead of time. Mm. So it's these weird moments where I'm like, I have to figure out how to just be a part of this experience, but something's not true to this experience. I just obviously wouldn't have the words at that time. Yeah,
1: I believe in it as part of any type of narrative or self-discovery work, but especially trauma recovery. And for a long time, though, it, it's interesting. At my at onsite, we that's something we do a lot of, and we use a lot of creative, innovative ways to to walk people down that path of discovering, rediscovering, or nurturing kind of your inner child. And it's been around for a long time. It's what usually gets the quickest eye roll uh, and then has the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So people are suspicious about going back, but the minute you make that safe and interesting uh, and not prescriptive and agenda-based, then it can be the most impactful thing of all everything that we do. Totally. And But what I, I was guilty of when I did that inner child work, I kind of checked it off my list as if, oh yeah, I did that. And what I loved hearing you do is that it's not something you check off your list; it's something you continue to do and continue. It's just a lifelong journey of continuing to nurture that part of ourselves. And I love it, just like when kids that age—they're so resilient. But when I'm watching now with a one-year-old, but they learn stuff faster. Mm-hmm. But they also learn how to do things like self-regulate which when our brains evolve, that's hard for us to do because we, we just want to solve it, mm-hmm. and the intellect kicks in, which right, I love what you said too, that most of what we do therapeutically is, is really speaking to the wrong side of the brain. It's not the part of the brain that holds our pain. Yeah. And so it, it seems like you've taken a process, powerful like EMDR, and, and moved it into a living, breathing, actionable, nurturing piece to you.
0: It's interesting. One of my first therapy sessions who is she was a child trauma specialist and I was talking and you know, I ran a communications agency for eight years. So I literally externalized the world of words mm-hmm. as my job because I just wanted to make sense of things with words. So I was I got so good at it, I started a company out of it. And I went in and I'm articulating perfectly kind of, you know, what I need and what the da da. And she was like, okay, one second. And she went and got a sand tray Mm. and was like, just pick out some figurines. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I am not paying $200 for this. (laughs) What is this garbage? (laughs) Meanwhile, little Z had been waiting patiently for 28 years to just be asked what she needs. Mm. And she sprinted over, grabbed a bunch of the right figurines that made sense to her, put them down in a literal formulation that explained her her whole experience. And I realized I had been such an absent single mom. You know, here she was spending all this time trying to signal to me all these things of her experience. And I just wasn't listening because she spoke she spoke in figurines and drawings and doodles and like what was age appropriate for her. So I think surrendering and then I outgrew my agency because I had externalized a world that was a tool subconsciously, and I no longer needed that, so I outgrew my career, which is at that phase of it, which was wild.
2: Oh, tell me more about that. So, well, first, tell everyone what you were doing.
0: Sure. What was I, I was doing then? Yeah. yeah. What we were you doing? So I um I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. I started volunteering with a campaign with the UN just to kind of get in the mix from Vancouver and they ended up hiring me as a so- social media strategist, mostly because I was young enough to understand what those platforms meant. My background's in sociology, so it was a lot about human patterning, not advertising. And it became successful. You know, A lot of companies were trying to integrate kind of a sense of consciousness into their business at the time. Nonprofits were struggling with how to tell their stories. Um, so it was the perfect storm of things I intuitively knew I wanted Mm -hmm. to do and a market need. Frankly, the timing was really good at the time. So that was 2010. Mm -hmm. So I did that for the next seven years. I opened our office in New York from Vancouver and, and grew the company and represented, we were vertical agnostic, meaning any kind of industry and, it was really it, I kind of and this is the thing about dissociation because I hadn't integrated for the first, you know, at least 5 years of that, it's a blur. Mm. I was there doing the work, but like I have a hard time fully recalling a lot of that, but my high functioning self was fully there doing it all. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it worked until it didn't. It worked until it didn't. I think when my Russian nesting dolls of ages kind of started clicking in a little better. Um, My chapter changed, kind of the page turned. And and again, I really think we as a collective should examine the jobs we do. And because of course, we've all heard like you choose the partner that is a mirror to the inner world that you're, but the jobs we do very often are that, that extension of self. sometimes we choose great jobs it was a wonderful job it was very much in service but I outgrew the need to articulate everything to try to make sense of the world through words Um, and then it's kind of like the spell broke and it was just so clearly done and I was like we got an acquisition offer which I didn't want to end up taking which again was so counterintuitive to everything you're told, you know, um, especially as a kid that didn't grow up with very much. So it was, it was wild. Yeah. To just free fall. How long ago was that when you, that was probably three and a half years ago. Um, shut down love social and then just took a year off nearly a year off. Yeah
1: but I'm just curious for you, what did that look like?
0: I always use the term imaginal cells, that in-between space for the caterpillar and the butterfly, the most overused metaphor of all time, but super helpful. Um, That goop period where scientists still don't understand how a caterpillar becomes liquid Mm. before it becomes a butterfly. Mm. And it's the nothing space. It's the nowhere space. It's the in-between space where you're totally disoriented because you're reorienting. And it's that becoming space. And it is so hard to navigate because you're not meant to. And that's so hard for people and our society that just wants answers. Like, what are you doing? Where are you going? What's happening? And you're not meant to. And the truth is most people inside there, what are you doing? Where are you going? Don't know where they are. They are in the free fall. They just haven't externalized the space to say, I'm taking time off. They haven't really made a stand for that. Um, I traveled because, you know, when everyone else was backpacking, I had started my company, so I went to a couple countries. I, you know, was in deep therapy. I was being more creative and writing and reading and and contemplating. And I was, frankly, surrendering in so much that I said, you know, I stopped believing that my job of service had to be obvious. Like maybe I don't have to serve a bunch of huge nonprofits. Maybe. I can just be a little acupuncture needle on this planet. Maybe (laughs) my breath is enough. Maybe if I just stay in my body, that's enough. Maybe Mm -hmm. I don't need to do all these things. Maybe being a barista is my greatest service here, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, and that really let me sit in myself and kind of kill off a little bit of the ego of having to have another, you know, big career, so to say. Um, No ideas came to me. My brain just (laughs) kind of was like, bye. Um, And then nine months in, truly around like four in the morning, of course, around nine months, how long it takes to have a child. um, Around four in the morning, she kicked being honeycomb, which was the next birth, uh, so to say. And it was a fully baked idea. That just came to you. Just came. Stop. Fully. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Yeah,
1: I didn't either. Wow.
0: Yeah, she she was fully formed. She was very clear of her demands. And I'm using this terminology because I by no means think I came up with this. I think this is in the zeitgeist, has always been in the zeitgeist, and just needed expressing and and felt like I could be a good partner in it, hopefully. And um, that morning, I typed out the whole thing, the full... What what is it? it? Yeah. So for me, you know, the personal is a professional, of course. So I just didn't want to fragment myself anymore. I can't do that anymore. I won't do that anymore. It causes psychosis and anxiety, and I can't. So I wanted a job where I didn't have to pretend I wasn't a part of everything and everything wasn't everything. I wanted a non-dualist job. Mm. And nature is that. That is nature's brilliance and intelligence. That is Mother Earth. That is the physiological, physics, mathematical reality of the planet that we live on. So... Nature's intelligent being a student of that and really, again, wanting a job where I could be a student every day where I didn't have to pretend to have all the answers or it wasn't an exertion of myself. It was I felt like I was in a larger orchestra of things. So honeycomb is based on six deep patterns in nature and it's a reimagination of an economic thesis you know the economic thesis the world the world of money was created by men a long time ago mm. and it's kind of the never ending line up it's kind of the gdp that's the never ending you know rise and um, it's growth at the expense of everything yeah and we live in a circle we don't live in a line this planet is a circle and that is the feminine. The feminine is a circle. It's cycles. Our bodies work in cycles. This planet works in cycles. So, Honeycomb is based on these six deep patterns in nature, including cycles. And it's just a new framework. It's permission for investors and entrepreneurs to create their companies or fund companies with some of this reimagination in mind. And people, when I kind of articulated this, they are like, well, you don't have a finance background. And this is part of it is our finance background is a delusion, we created this. And it's actually not in harmony with nature. And she is older than us. I mean, the human species, so if we look at a 24 hour clock of the Earth's origins, we've been here for one second to midnight. So we're .0001% of the biomass and we've killed off 56% in one second. Hmm. Um, and I think that kind of humbling is really important when we create to just always tune in and ask, what would Mother Nature do? Like, what's a, how, how are we better children <laughs> of this planet, essentially, as a part of the family versus, again, exerting old, frankly, masculine frameworks of the economy?
2: Mm.
0: So what does that practically look like? So it's a fund, Mm -hmm. it's an early stage fund where funded by one extraordinary woman who really wanted to take a risk and I think that's really important. Um, She wanted the idea of something else in the world and uh, privately funded the whole thing. And so it's been two years, we've made 13 investments. And it's companies that literally abide by biomimicry, mimicking biology. So a woman named Ginger out of North Carolina that figured out how to grow bricks out of bacteria that clean the air. You know, how does nature build and how it breathes? Everything breathes. Why don't our homes breathe? The home for everything else in the natural world breathes. Um, A guy named Eben out of upstate New York that figured out how to use mycelium mushroom as a styrofoam alternative and a packaging alternative. Um, through to a storage company that essentially makes it transparent of everything you own and you can share anything with anyone in your community. We don't need any more strollers. We don't need any more golf clubs. We don't need any more. If we know everything in nature knows what it has because resources are so scarce and we don't know what we even own. Right. And we don't know. I don't know three houses down what everyone owns. And if we did, we would buy a lot less stuff. So in some cases, it's abstract application of nature. In some cases, it's very literal material applications.
1: know as an entrepreneur and then also have a foundation i'm learning more about the investment world because i'm getting we've had we've been fortunate to have a successful business and a brand so i get called on mm-hmm. by traditional investors so what would you say differs i guess like i know most equity models it's typically if their strategy what they go into when they're going to flip it and the return and all that stuff but how do you guys do that how do you balance it out
0: yeah so we are a for-profit fund and i think that's really important. Important, I think that reading the room, i.e., the context of our time, is you need to make money to make a difference. And I have no qualms about that. You know, I mm-hmm. think that's really important, especially for women, to just own the fact that you're allowed to make a difference and make money. That's good. Um, our framework is based on patient capital. There can be, so again, in ecosystems, there's high growth organisms and they're slow growth organisms, and they create an ecosystem. And in a portfolio, you can have high growth things that are never at the cost of people or planet. So in our diligence process, which we're actually gonna open source, I believe we're gonna be one of the small handful of funds that's open sourcing their entire diligence process. Wow! Because we want traditional industries, traditional investors to just have permission of another framework so again company the reason we're vertical agnostic and we don't choose one industry it's a delusion that there is different industries it, it, this is all illusion breaking I mean I think if honeycomb does one thing it's to just break down the illusions that there's industry there is no industry it's all one industry and they completely butterfly affect each other they're so interdependent yeah. so how do you actually widen your visibility as a company into the broader ecosystem. So we, these six principles essentially play out between alignment um, and the rest of them. And, uh, And we kind of invest through that framework. We ask our entrepreneurs kind of the questionnaire around these six principles, and then we track them. And so now we're two years in and we're backing all the data in because Honeycomb was entirely intuited I didn't do any research, I just typed it out, And my partner and I joke that it's uh, the common sense thesis because there's a lot of data to actually back all this stuff up. The data that doesn't exist is around the interpersonal, empathy, emotional, that's the harder stuff to find the data around. But we're still in our open sourcing, we're saying we ask this question and there's no data and that's okay. We still need to ask this question Mm. when we look at companies.
1: The way you were describing your approach to business and industry being integrated and not uh, segregated, it sounds like you're talking about a human being too.
0: That's the idea. I mean, the kind of micro being the macro, being the macro, being the micro, um, which is just so important if we treat companies like a person. yeah. So we invested in a company called All Voices that is about initially sexual harassment reporting but the larger framework is in all biological organisms if you don't have psychological safety you can't function yeah or surely you can't function well and it creates kind of a cancer in the ecosystem and with companies it's the same thing so how do we educate people that it's not the symptom of sexual harassment it's that you have human organisms in your ecosystem of a company and when they don't have psychological safety, all these things that frankly have financial realities are affected. Um, so All Voices is trying to democratize that. So again, in nature, there's very little hierarchy. There's, it's decentralized because everything needs to be communicating. And in this case, this tech platform, the employees without HR adopting this tech platform can report in, and then HR is notified. And this is what happens in tree networks. When there's a trauma to one tree, they signal to the rest of the trees, hey, I have a trauma, and there's nurse plants that essentially redistribute nutrients to that. So this lack of communication... I know. he has got a good brain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've got a good brain. It's really incredible. We do. Yes, we do. All the so answers beautiful. are here and they've been here for yep. so long.
1: That's so encouraging, honestly, to hear that there is a better way to balance mission and margin mm-hmm. and that it's absolutely okay to, to well, one, to, to make money in service of the greater good and that it's all tethered together.
0: I'm nodding. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then, like you also invest in films. I know we saw what was the name of the Ram Das going film? home, going home and they needed more funding for production. but this movie is powerful. So powerful this documentary about Ram Das and his story is so beautiful and even how he views his stroke, where he can, in the worldly sense barely function. Mm-hmm. and he is the brightest. Most aware, awake, joyful, soulful human. And what was the thing that he said that we kept um, repeating? I am loving kindness. I am loving kindness. Mm-hmm. I remember, this is so cheesy, but like literally that night when we all went to see that, my phone fell off a mountain. And I remember <laughs> being so distraught. I'm like and what, a literal mountain. Literal like a mountain. Big mountain. <laughs> it fell out of my pocket <gasps> over a mountain. And it was like so basic, but I just... After seeing that film, I'm like, this is the silliest thing. And I kept walking. I was like crying because I was emotional. And I was going, I am love and kindness. I am love and kindness. And it's re-centered me. I said that the whole walk back. And there was just something in that film of his awareness and how present he is, even in his altered state like watching that clip of them taking him out into the ocean where, you know, he's floating and he is literally, it's like light shining off of him.
1: Everybody needs to see that.
2: Yes. It's on Netflix.
1: And speaking of spiritual process, I'd love to get your take on, on that kind of what your original imprint was, maybe what Mm -hmm. you grew up with and how that's evolved up until today.
0: Yeah. I mean, real talk, I think it was for spirituality. Um, I think walking that path is something that is an organic privilege or something you're cornered into. And in my case, I was cornered into it. There was a lot of trauma growing up. And I just had to believe there was something else in the works alongside me, that there was some organization to this disorder of events and, and experiences. And so... I've always written and I do think writing has been a conversation with different parts of myself and different parts of something else. Um, And I think the deeper I attuned, I mean, I was lucky because my mom, God bless her, even with all of her, you know, difficulties brought in Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer for me as a child. Like there was times where we couldn't really afford a babysitter. So she'd put me in the car with Little Caesars Pizza and I'd be listening to a Wayne Dyer tape. I was like 10. <laughs> wow! So, and I remember Jill Bolte Taylor's first um, Oprah interview and TED Talk, The Stroke of Insight. And I just met her at TED this year, which was extraordinary. But I remember watching that maybe at 13, 14. And the truth is the truth is the truth. So I remember every spiritual blueprint that came in. And I was like, that. I can hold on to. And they are these kind of gingerbread, you know, path crumbs where you're like, okay, I got another one. And you just over time start feeling something that you can't put together yet or ever at all in some cases. But, you know, these little pieces exist. Yeah, totally. This fits something. Yeah, something fits in all of all of it. Yeah.
1: Do you feel spiritually you have more uh, questions than answers or the other way around?
0: I think it's both. It's almost a symbiosis of both those things. It's a living question, right? It's alive. Um, To insinuate there's an answer is an ending, and while I'm here, it's alive. So all my questions are breathing all the time, and they change. The way I ask one question, it might be the same, seven words will take on an entire new meaning sometimes a few years later. You know, love meant something very different in my 20s than it yeah. means to mm-hmm. me now. Um, trauma means something very different in my 20s than it means to me now. Darkness, all these words, all these questions, why means something different? So, yeah.
1: Thank you. And then I can't skip over this part because I'm slightly obsessed (laughs) with Oprah. And you said, you just casually dropped it in, I met her this year. What was? Jill Bolte Taylor. Oh, I thought you said Oprah, sorry.
0: Which is just as important to me. Yes. Yeah, tell us about that one. I don't know who that is. Jill Bolte Taylor is a neuroscientist who- She's brilliant. She's extraordinary. She's the most watched TED Talk I think of all time. What? Or top three, surely. And she had a stroke. But because she's a neuroscientist, she was able, between her left and right hemisphere coming online and offline during this program, observe herself having a stroke. What? And the organizational part of the brain would come online and be like, Jill, you're having a stroke. You got to call 911. You got to get help. And then she'd go to the other part, which is just being. And it was nirvana. And she was just in this state of transcendence. You have to watch this. Come on. And everything was color and cells. And... She was truly fluid and energy. And then her other hemisphere would come on and be like, you're going to die. You're bleeding out. (laughs) So it's her journey that she got to live that. And as a scientist, and that's why I love the integration of science in my Mm. work. Science is God. Science is the actual surest thing we have of precision Mm. and organization that we did not create. So for a scientist to have a spiritual experience is just so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I messaged her on the TED app and I said, Jill, I'm at TED and we probably won't meet, but I'm just so happy your atoms are here. And she wrote back, find me and hug me. Wow. And I found her and I just went up to her tears and she just gave me the biggest bear hug. And that was it. And that was enough, you know. But yeah, she was such a milestone moment for me. Um, I think my hope, I, I really am inside of where I've wanted to be. I, I kind of have nowhere to go right now. I feel, I feel really it's, Mm. it's somehow with my participation, I have created the life I really wanted and I get to speak to the truest truths, which is everyone is everything in my work, in the most unconventional space Mm -hmm. to do that, which I think needs the most breath and heart brought back into it. So, hope's as much as I intend for myself to participate as rooted and as a student in Mm -hmm. the evolution of all this and just kind of deepen everything that's here, less expanding, more Deepening probably. Oh, I love
1: Sounds that. Sounds like you're in your sweet spot.
2: I am in my sweet spot. If you spot. could see us
1: right now, all of us got tears welling up in our eyes.
2: <laughs> that is so beautiful.
1: <laughs> it really is.
2: Oh, oh. I love yeah. that so much. And like there that's that's an exhale.
0: Yeah. It's an exhale.
2: You know, and that peace. Like that was my word for you. I I want you to be surrounded and held in peace. And I think the work that you've been doing, and I, I love how you're always a student. You're always learning. You are always absorbing information and there's so much out there, but which encourages me so much because I'm like, wow. Like I I learn, I glean so much from you every time I'm in your mm, presence. Ditto. So I've just been so encouraged by you to want to like go back into myself and to really um Do work that's not enjoyable (laughs) at all. But I don't know, something about who you are and your friendships to to me um, makes me want to do that work or excites me to do that work. You encourage me in such a loving, beautiful way, not by ever telling me what to do, but just by your life and by watching you and the way you've encouraged me. Like I want to do that work. I remember even the first time I stayed with you, I woke up and I was like hurting really bad, and I came and I like sat in your room, and you just held that energy with me. Like you bring such a beautiful gift to me, to our friends, to the work that you're doing. It's, it's honestly, it's a privilege, Ruthie. You're slaying me. You, it is. You're
0: slaying me right now, and it's so wild. I think back to Miles, what you were saying about mirror neurons, we need to keep seeing the truths reflected back Mm. to each other. And you do that to the whole world you touch. And you do that, Miles, to the whole world you touch. And I think that we need to just keep saying my journey is the universal journey. I mean, we are birthed from darkness. We are, in the words of Rupi Kaur, in a womb, not a tomb. You know, this... We might need less light workers and more shadow workers right now. We need to befriend our darkness right now. We need to understand the shadow world and we need to remember that, you know, dark matter was just, you know, really recognized in the universe and there's more dark matter than light matter, but it holds things together. Mm -hmm. Dark matter actually holds things together and we, they're back to befriending the tools. I think that, we just need to love our shadows so much. And we were saying, I think last night, about these dragons that are surrounding us and these things. And we just wanna, I can't remember who said it, but we slay dragons in the outer world and we'll keep doing that until we realize they're all in our inner world, you know? And this time of our lives, I think the work that you guys are doing and the work that I hope is, you no, know, I know is universal is the reconciliation of our shadow world. Mm. And that's been a Jungian framework forever. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but now's the time. I mean, these shadows, and it's a law of, again, physics, of balance. The darkness needs to come out to balance things.
1: Beautifully said from both of you, honestly. I think uh, both of your voices are so important right now. The way that you... Uh, and I love the way you just saw each other. What's well, this polarizing dialogue that we get to have with people, where we we talk about hard stuff and then we really speak a ton of truth? And you do that as good as anybody I know,
0: absolutely, Ruthie.
1: And uh, it's just an honor to be in both of your presence, honestly. But I, and I love um, what you're describing at, when you ask that beautiful question about what you hope for is grace-based integration, mm-hmm. and that's what the world deserves right now. And it and I, I want people to hear. That because you could easily hear this and think we just got our our shit together. And we do, and yet it just looks different. And so when I'm when I'm in that space too of not wanting to be somewhere else, I handle adversity differently. Adversity doesn't stop. Pain doesn't stop. stressings all that stuff still exists, but it can coexist when we know about it, and when we own it. And so I think for people out there who feel really lopsided one way or the other, to know that you can dance with both.
0: Absolutely. And you need to, and every ceiling when reached really does become a floor. So anyone that's like, oh, and then you healed or, and I, Ruthie, I know we talk about this all the time. It doesn't stop until it all stops and you don't want it to stop. Again, you're, you're living into this eternal thing. So I still experience awful episodes of anxiety and depression Mm. and debilitation. And then my shadow self comes online and says, Hey, have we made any progress at all? Are you okay? Maybe we're not okay. You know, are you an imposter? Are you really, do you believe anything you're saying? And all that is a tape that's so well-worn that it'll always come online. It's just my bounce back rate is shorter, but I will go back into that space. That's okay. I just got a
2: flashlight with me with like LED, (laughs) 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 like better equipped. (laughs) Yes. That's what I always, I'm like, um, when people ask if I'm doing like a how to book, I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, (laughs) get out of here. I'm literally, and that's what I love about speaking. So I'm like, I am forever a student and I'm not speaking like my truth. This is just, this is truth. And I need to be reminded of it Mm -hmm. because this morning was really hard to get up Yeah, and I can fall back so quickly. And so these are just truths that I, it's a gift to me to get to speak them and write them because it's what I need to be reminded of today and every day and it's a constant it's always work mm-hmm. like I'll, I'll never arrive will forever be on the journey I have so much that I want to learn and there's so much I feel so great about like there's so many questions and kind of like what you're saying like we won't have the answer until it's done yeah so there's always going to be this beautiful fluidity of like what I thought a year ago, I'm already feeling so different about so many things, and we're going to grow and evolve and expand, and that's exciting. It's so and exciting. And to see the
1: light in the eyes of another seeker mm. is, yeah, it makes, when you get in that space, it's like permission to come alive. Yes. It's such a
0: special sparkle, and you know it right yes. away.
2: <laughs> yeah. um, sweet little angel bun. Who is this?
1: Yeah, tell us what you're looking at.
2: What are you looking at? Oh, you
0: guys, come on. So I'm looking at a sweet little angel. I was probably six or seven and I was in the house I stayed in the longest. So it's so perfect that you chose it in this moment for me to speak to this photo. And it's my birthday. Oh, it's my birthday, and um, I have a Beauty and the Beast figurine on my cake. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I have so much softness in my heart for this little girl, this sweet little girl. It's it's wild. There's a big scar on my left eyebrow, and I can see it so big in her um, because it was yet to heal the way it would you know, 20-odd years later. And it's wild to see the resilience in a little person that has already at six seen more than I can actually fully wrap my head around Mm. now. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild that she's smiling the way that she is, blowing out those candles. We need to make wishes. I love, we talked about the smiles, you know, before this, about how birthdays are really this, permission, this kind of archetypal permission to celebrate yourself and be celebrated. I hope every child gets a birthday. I hope, I think of the kids in these like unfortunate, you know, global circumstances right now, and a moment to celebrate that they were born, that they're here. So I love the ritual of wish making and I love that she's still participating in wishes. When at this age, I really didn't think I could.
2: What is the quote that in the book we read last night, the children's book, You Belong Here? Yeah. What is the line that we love so much? You
0: are a dream the world once dreamt. Oh. <laughs> oh
2: I know. <laughs> Everyone needs the children's book, You yeah. Belong Here. Oh, it's so it's powerful. powerful. It's powerful. So powerful. I look at that little girl and I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I'm so thankful that you're here and I'm so thankful that you have chosen to love that little girl and become this integrated human that you are because you give me, that little girl gives me so much love. Like I want to cry looking at that. (laughs) Me too. We are crying to be clear. Thankful. I I want to say thank you to her. Thanks, little Z. Yeah,
1: based on based on what you know now, which is a lot we've mm. learned in the last hour. What's a message you would have for her?
0: I'm right here. <sighs> I'm right here, and it's wild because time really feels like a circle right now. And um, I think at this age, I would even have glimpses of a future that would hold her in her entirety that I could become a woman that could she could trust. You know, she could trust the world. And I would tell her, you can trust this world.
1: Mm-hmm. So many little girls need to hear that.
0: Yeah. You belong here. You belong here. Oh.
1: And then one more, I was just, I think the teachers in our lives that show up are so important. And they speak into us at, at divine times. And sometimes I love being able to speak back into them, whether they're alive or not, it doesn't matter but um, I was really struck by Miss Brown. Mm -hmm. And if if she were here, and you could cut out a message for her, what would it be?
0: Thank you for reminding me of my majesty.
2: (sighs) Yeah. I love it. Sweet sister. (laughs)
0: Do all your interviews just end in so many tears? (laughs) 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 It happens. (laughs) (gasps) <gasps> you oh, broke me was... down, man. You broke me down. <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank, Thank you Beautifully guys. said. Not... Thank you. I, I love your
2: heart. I, I love, love you. your spirit. I love, I love you. your brain. I love, you. I love your mind. I love your curiosity. I love all of you. I love all of you, too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for bringing it today.
0: <laughs> make up fake like love, make them all laugh. Come on, someone, take off your mind. It's nice to
2: me. Thank you guys so much for being here with us today. We know that your time is valuable, so it just means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, and the song is called Alcatraz, and it is from their EP Hallucinate and I just cannot speak highly enough about these boys. They have a new record coming out soon and you should check them out, they're amazing.
1: Definitely go get their music wherever you can get it. They are amazing and you're gonna love them as much as we do. If you wanna learn more about The Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and information about the guest, And please follow us on Instagram at The Unspoken Podcast. We'd also love for you to subscribe to the podcast and help us spread the news and share this because we cannot wait to show you what's up next. And we will be with you all again soon.